Matthew 26, 36. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and he fell on his face and prayed saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he came to his disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away until I drink it, thy will be done. And he came back and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Arise, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. I'll pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you and again ask God that you would just speak to us, minister to our hearts in such a way that Jesus would be exalted within each of us, that we would yield to you in praise and thanksgiving and humility, and that you would have your rightful place in each of us in this day that you've created. Thank you for your word, God, and we thank you for your ministry to us. In Jesus' name, amen. May be seated. Well, it's the Christmas season, and we're talking about the death of Christ, not his birth. So I know that may feel a little out of place and not as celebratory as we would like for Christmas to be, especially after these great hymns we've been singing. But as we know, Christ came to die. So it's not totally inappropriate that. We would be at these portions of Scripture at this time of year. I will, um, my plan is to give a Christmas message Christmas morning when we're together. So if you're wanting a Christmas message, be here Christmas morning. <laughs> um, but again, this is why Jesus came. And in these, um, this, this walk up to the cross, this prelude to the cross, it's... it's agonizing to read these things and to see what Jesus went through. And it was terrible. And we haven't even gotten to the bad part yet. Just the Garden of Gethsemane begins it. And then with the betrayal of Judas, which would have just been so difficult. And then once he's brought before Caiaphas and the beatings begin, and then before Pilate, and they really go after him, um, all that before we ever get to the crucifixion, and then the crucifixion itself. And with all of that, we have to keep in mind, this, this, these were things that had to happen. It's essential. Repeatedly through these sections, we're going to hear Jesus say that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. These things have to happen to fulfill the Scriptures. But they are not the basis, they are not what provides atonement for us what provides redemption for us. 
The redemption was not even in, in the cross per se, as far as the sufferings of the cross, but it was in that time on the cross, that was the context, but it was while he was on the cross that he became sin and paid for our sin. So it was not the sufferings and all that even preceded the sufferings which takes away sin. It's the context. It's the backdrop. But what takes away our sins is Christ's shed blood on our behalf. And we're not there yet. So all this is important. It's vital for us to to see all that he was willing to suffer for us. It's important because we have to see that we are the ones who put Christ to death and, and the horror of sin. And this had to be, it's, it's been described as the greatest crime that humanity has ever been guilty of, is the crime of putting Jesus to death, a totally innocent man. And it had to happen this way. He had to be mistreated. He had to be unjustly condemned for, for Christ to ultimately give his life for us. But it's, a, it's nothing about this is pleasant. You know, we come to this part here in verse 36. It says that they walked out to the Gethsemane, which was on the Mount of Olives, um, a garden place full of, of olive trees, not a vineyard, but, but an oliveyard. And on the Mount of Olives to this day, there are olive trees and there is a section where you can go and, and it may in fact be the place where Jesus prayed that night. Some of those trees are 2,000 year old trees that are, that are still there. Pretty amazing to be there and, and think about the whole situation. And so Judas would have not known about this departure. And Judas probably led the mob to the upper room, only to find it had been vacated. And so in that delay, they have made their way to to the Mount of Olives, to the Garden of Gethsemane, and there is sufficient time for Jesus to pray. And in this prayer, he says in verse 37, he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, would have been James and John, And he began to be grieved and distressed. In verse 38, he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Luke gives us an added detail and tells us in chapter chapter 22 of Luke that he was sweating blood. That the agony, the intensity of what he was going through at this time resulted in the, in the capillaries breaking and, and blood coming through the sweat pores, which is an actual medical condition. None of this was because of the cross. There were hundreds of people that had been put to death by the Romans who didn't sweat blood. I would dare to say the two thieves that were crucified with Jesus did not sweat blood. It was not the anticipation of the agony of the cross itself, of the crucifixion, which was causing this great distress to the point of death. It was something else. I can think of only one other time when we see this kind of emotion from Jesus, and it was when Lazarus died. Not nearly to the degree that we see here. 
But there is some parallel. And when Lazarus had passed away and Jesus went and he was in that context, that environment of the weeping and the grief of one who had, who had passed away, it says that he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. Jesus was. And then it says Jesus wept. And then a little later, it says again, he was deeply moved within. So I made reference to these verses yesterday in the funeral, the memorial service that we had for Ernest Ellsworth. And it tells us in those verses that Jesus is troubled by death. We look at it on this side of the cross, and we can say death is not so much an enemy for us. It is a friend. It is a deliverer. Because we know we will be with the Lord the moment that we die. And yet death still is, is an enemy in that it robs us who are alive from one that we love. And we grieve while they don't grieve because they're with the Lord and their joy has been made complete. But our grief is significant. And Jesus was in the midst of that and he could see that with Mary and Martha and all the others, friends and relatives that were there, their grief. And it, he was deeply troubled in his own spirit. The Bible tells us that death is the enemy of God, that he hates it. It is his last enemy and that he will put it under his feet one day. There will come a time when there will no longer be death. What a great time that will be. But even all of that, as much as death is hated by God, it is the enemy of God, it grieves God. It's not that. That's not what this is here in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's not physical death that is creating this, this grief to the point of death in Jesus. But we believe that it is the spiritual death that he's about to undergo. That in some way that we cannot comprehend, that Jesus being fully God and fully man is going to die a full death. A physical death and a spiritual death. That he will be separated, and that's what death is, separated from his father. And it has never happened before. I believe that it would be orthodox, standard, evangelical teaching to say that that spiritual separation was not only in his humanity, but it was also in his deity. And that's where the mystery is. How could the eternal son be separated from the eternal father? I don't know, don't, we don't know the answer to that. But that's where this is going. And this is what Jesus is anticipating. That the one that he has been one with, not just for the 33 years of his life as a human, but for all eternity. Because it took God to pay for our sin. This is why we say it is not just the man who was separated, but it was the Son that was separated, the eternal Son of God that was separated, because otherwise there could not have been an eternal payment for our sin. Only Jesus as God, both man and God, could pay for our sin. And as a man... It was going to be agonizing. But as God, 
it was going to even be worse. Because in this profound act, he would take all our sin upon himself and be separated from the Father three hours. But here's again the mystery. In that three hours, he took an eternity's worth of sin and judgment. This is what grieved him, what troubled his soul to the point of death. I think about that, and it occurs to me in terms of application that the, there should be a very similar response to you and me when we are in broken fellowship with our God. We've been made one with Him. And sin is no small thing. And whatever it might be, willful sin, sin of just neglect, but when things are not right with God, and we have known the sweetness of unity and oneness with God, it ought to crush us. I can remember the first time that my older brother and his new bride were on the outs with each other. They hadn't been married very long, and I don't know what had happened, but the honeymoon was over. <laughs> and they, they just were not having a happy moment. And my mom, bless her heart, was just so concerned because she could see they're not happy with each other. They're not even talking to each other. And, and she, would, she said, Charlie, do something. <laughs> and that proverb of taking a dog by the ears came to mind. Meddling with strife that doesn't belong to you. And I thought, no, this is, this is walking into the wrong situation. <laughs> but more, I wasn't so much, to be, to be honest, I wasn't so much afraid of what the response would be as I knew that God was big enough to work in this. And I didn't need to rescue them. That God, they loved Jesus, and Jesus was big enough. And so sure enough, they made up, and they thanked me for not interfering with their little spat. But I tell you that story because as an outsider, my mom was going, this precious oneness and unity and joy of a newlywed couple, it's gone. That's what we have with God. And it ought to grieve us deeply when there's anything that comes between us and God. And we ought to grieve for one another when we see a brother or a sister that's not walking in the joy of unity and oneness with the Lord because we know what they've lost. There's no condemnation in that. That's just love and concern. Just as we grieve for those who have lost a loved one. We grieve for our brothers and sisters in Christ who have lost that sweetness of fellowship with Christ. It says that, I don't want to take any of these things for granted. He was grieved, he was distressed, his soul was deeply grieved to the point of death. It says he prayed. We know that Jesus prayed all the time. 
The Gospels indicate that to us, that he regularly would go off by himself and spend time alone with his father. So this was not a new thing. He did not pray just when the pressure was on. That, too, is a lesson for us. Prayer should be continual. Prayer should be constant. But there's nothing wrong with praying when we're going through crisis. And in this crisis prayer, it says that he fell on his face. Maybe you've never been there. Verse 39, he went a little beyond them and he fell on his face. I've been there. I'm thankful that I don't live in that condition. But there are times in life when the only way to pray, it feels, is on your face. This was one of those times. He is in the dirt. And he's not concerned about the dirt. And as he was sweating blood and crying out to his God, you know he wasn't looking clean. No thought about it. This was just the the natural response to the agony of what he is going through. Being on your face before God doesn't make our prayers more effective. That was never a thought in Jesus' mind. My posture is going to make me more heard by God. Nonsense. It was just spontaneous. Just the outward expression of what's going on in his heart. To be on your face is to be utterly undone. There's no more strength. There's no more fight. There's no resistance. It is a posture of complete yieldedness and dependence and of humility. It's the posture of a defeated soldier. On your face. Not that God is his enemy. But it's also the posture of just one who says, I cannot stand and I cannot do anything. I am helpless before you, God. It's not a bad place to be, as hard as it is. And then he prays this very, very profound prayer, simple, so profound. Twice he says, my father, verse 39, if it is possible, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And then he prays again, slightly different in verse 42. My father, if this cannot pass away until I drink it, thy will be done. It was not possible. If Jesus is going to pay for our sin, if sin is going to be removed and relationship with God be restored, there is only one possible way for that to happen. If God could have done it by simple decree, you are forgiven. We know he would have done that. But it was not possible for God to simply declare the unrighteous righteous. The Old Testament tells us that God 
cannot justify the wicked. He cannot. A good judge, a righteous judge, cannot and does not justify wicked people. It's the very definition of justice. The, the unjust get what they deserve. And we are unjust. And to get what we deserve has to happen. God cannot, as much as he would like, just say, let's just forget the whole thing. Let's just wipe the slate clean. If he could do that, he would have done that. He could not. The only way, and this is from Romans chapter 3, the only way that God could justify us and remain just, so that he would be be just and justifier, Paul says. So in other words, the just justifier. The only way for him to be just and justifier is that sin has to be dealt with. Has to be. We don't fully understand this. One of the earlier sermons that I've given here on this section of Scripture, we talked about that the payment for sin had to be eternal because God is an eternal God. And it impacts Him. Our sin impacts Him eternally. When someone sins against us, we get a little picture of this. Somebody may, you just name the sin. I mean, it just, it, whatever the sin might be where somebody sins against us, I can guarantee you, they do not, they cannot comprehend the total impact of what that sin does to us. And that's why forgiveness seems, in a sense, so wrong. Because when they come and apologize, They don't begin to touch, that apology does not begin to touch the damage that was done. If you are a hunter, and I'm a hunter, it's like the difference between the entrance wound and the exit wound. All the shooter sometimes sees is the entry wound. And you could put a band-aid over that, quite honestly. All the offender sees is the entrance wound. But you don't see the rest of the wound. On the inside, it's totally destroyed. And if there's an exit wound, it is huge in comparison to the entry wound. And the person who did it, the offender, all he sees is that little entry wound, and he comes up and says, I'm so sorry for that little hole. That's what it feels like, right? Because you're hurting big time. But all they see is a little hole. And they've made remedy for that. No, they haven't. It's much bigger. It makes me wonder why throughout the Old Testament, the penalty, the recompense for stealing was way more than simply returning what you stole. It was at least double. Proverbs chapter 6, it says, when a man steals, even if it is from hunger, he has to pay back seven times what he stole. It's not because God's trying to rub the face of the thief into what he's done. I think it's an expression that, it's, that, the, that the sin is greater 
than the act itself. There are repercussions that are bigger than that. And you will never make it right by having a one-to-one equivalency. Because we don't see the total damage that's been done. So even if a thief were to steal $10, he doesn't see. It's a bigger deal than, just than, spending, than stealing $10. Much bigger. And what Jesus is about to go through, we can't begin to comprehend. But I think that part of the reason that it's so ugly leading up to the cross is so that we can see, have a better idea of our sin and what it results in. It is not possible because of the enormity of our sin for God to say, let's just forget it. It has to be paid for. He must be just or he is not God. The cup is the cup of God's wrath, the cup of God's judgment. And Jesus is about to have poured out on him the wrath of God for all sin, for all time. No wonder he's saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. My father. Isaiah will say that he will speak, predicting of this, says that he was afflicted and crushed by his God. It's been observed that this is the only time in the Gospels where Jesus refers to God as my Father. My Father. And he does it twice. Jesus is about to become sin. And that is the only just way that this innocent man could be put to death. That he, this just, innocent man, could pay for our sin is that he would have to be innocent leading up to it, but would have to become sin. And in fact, he does. And in doing so, as different people have expressed it, God can make the unrighteous righteous and remain righteous himself. God can justify the unjust and remain just. But it's only as sin is paid for. Jesus is anticipating this and that's why it's causing such grief even to the point of death. Luke will point out not only is he sweating blood, but that God sends an angel to minister to him. Which tells us the kind of straits that he was in. It is, I don't question the good intentions, but it is so wrong that there is an element of the church today. You don't hear much about them in the last couple of years, which I'm glad for, but the emergent church People that have written books like The Shack and 
and others, um, and they just dogmatically refute the idea that Jesus experienced the wrath of God. In fact, they call that concept cosmic child abuse. They do not understand. They don't understand the nature of sin. They don't understand this had to happen. There was no way around it. For God to be just and justifier, Jesus had to experience what we deserve. And we deserve the wrath of God. This is not cosmic child abuse. Jesus volunteered for this. He was a willing substitute. And he was made sin. He did not become a sinner, but he was made sin. By the second time he prays, you can sense that he already knows the answer to his request where he says, my father, if this cannot pass away, he knows that it cannot. Thy will be done. And I would propose to you, that is where all prayer finishes. We have prayed well. We have prayed to the completion of a matter. When we can say and mean it, thy will be done not mine. I think sometimes the reason that we are not released from the burden is because we have not released our will to God's. Once this takes place, and Jesus is at this place, thy will be done. He marches to the cross. And you get the sense that he is doing this as a triumphant king. And not as a defeated victim. There's no sense of victimhood anywhere through this. He is in control. These soldiers are going to walk up to him, the mob. Are you the one? And he's just going to say, I am. And they all fall back to the ground. Matthew leaves that little incident out. Peter's going to take up a sword and chop off the ear of Malchus. And Jesus goes, it's not necessary. Slaps the ear back on. And he's going, Peter, I could call 12 legions of angels from my father. A legion was 6,000 soldiers at this time. So I think that's 72,000 angels. One angel would be enough. He is in complete control here. Everything is moving exactly as it should. Scripture's being fulfilled. He's not in a panic. He's not in despair. He's not overwhelmed by his circumstances. How did this happen? Speaking of his humanity at least, but I believe his deity as well, because of Philippians chapter 2, he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, that he humbled himself, not regarding equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. It's all speaking of his deity. Because this crisis has been passed. The crisis of whose will is going to be done. My will or God's. And as we read this, we go, there was never any real crisis. We knew. We knew. It's a difficult time, but we know the outcome. 
We are so confident in Jesus and who he is and his relationship with the Father that he is, no matter it may, it was a short while, a long while, he is going to yield to the will of the Father. And the crisis has passed. And I would argue that's the crisis. Not the cross, but whose will is going to be done? Mine or God's? And once that's been settled, for the joy set before him, he can endure the cross. But he had to get this settled. And we knew it was never going to be in question. Thy will be done. There have been different times in my life when I've been really agonizing in prayer over something. And to my shame, it usually takes a while. But there's always been that time when God finally brings me to the place and I go, God, your will be done. And the battle's over. And I can't tell you how many times the, the prayer is answered immediately. And often the way that I was hoping that it would be answered But I had to get to that place. Thy will be done. Not my will. Thy will be done. And you know when you really mean it. It might be praying for someone that's sick unto death. And we desperately want to see that child, that loved one, healed. And it's desperate. And God would have us again to say, not my will, God. Thy will be done. That's the battle. Anything else is really satanic. Adam was also in the garden. Nothing but paradise. This garden was not paradise. And Adam failed the test. All that tree was, was a statement of whose will was going to be done. And every time he walked by it, it was saying, thy will be done. And in one moment, he paused and listened to his wife and said, my will be done. And now the garden is being repeated. And Jesus in his own garden saying, not my will, but thine be done. And the tables are reversed. And salvation is now possible because Jesus said, not my will, but thine be done. It troubles me when I hear people, Christian apologists, Christian theologians, write that the highest value in life is the preservation of life. Well, that just makes things hard. I mean, try to sort through that when you're dealing with ethical dilemmas. The highest value for Jesus was not the preservation of his life or anyone else's life. It was the Father's will. That was his highest value. 
And it, again, ought to be true for you and I as well. Listen to these verses from Jesus speaking these from, as recorded in, in the Gospel of John. John 4.34, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me. John 5.30, I don't seek my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. 6.38, I have come from heaven, not to do my will, but the will of Him who sent me. John 8.29, I always do the things that please Him. And you think, man, that's, that's a bunch of times to say the same thing. It obviously was important to God for us to know what was most important to Jesus. And it wasn't his food. It wasn't his life. It wasn't his reputation. It wasn't even other people. It wasn't his family. It wasn't his mom. It wasn't his brothers and sisters. The most important thing to Jesus was the will of his father. Is that true for us? I believe this is where God had Abraham in, those, in that squeeze when he says, take your son and sacrifice him. And Abraham had to make a decision of whose will is going to be most important. And will the will of God take ascendancy over my own will and desires? And we know that Abraham yielded his will to the will of God. This is why there's probably very few verses in the Bible that are as profound as Romans 12, 1 and 2, where we are encouraged to do what Jesus is doing here. And that is simply present ourselves to him and say, not my will, but thine be done. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice to him, which is your spiritual service of worship. Lewis Berry Chafer says the idea of, pre of present is the same idea as yield. We yield our will to his. It's like that yield sign we see on the interstates. Give way. Yield. Say, not mine. Your will be done. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you, James says? Is not the source your own pleasures? You lust and do not have. So you fight and quarrel. What's he saying? Old professor we had at Columbia Bible College that taught marriage and family when I was there, Mr. Hatch, known as Buck Hatch. Quiet gentleman, southern drawl. And he, one time, Bill Bushhouse asked him, he says, Mr. Hatch, what do you think is the main reason that marriages don't work out for people? And in his quiet, gentlemanly southern drawl, he says, well, Bill... There's really only one reason. She wants her way, and he wants his way. And that's it. And somebody has got to yield. We just don't want to be the one to yield first. Because it's about dying to self.
I don't know that I fully understand this statement. I'm sure I don't. But I, the last few nights, I've been, I usually wake up somewhere around midnight, can't sleep, stay up for around an hour, go back to bed. And, um, and I've been watching little video clip, um, short video clips with Major Ian Thomas. He said the life that he lived, that Christ lived, qualifies you for the death that he died. The death he died qualifies you for the life he lived. Now, I don't think I understand all that. But the life he lived qualifies you for the death he died. I think Major Thomas was saying, by his life, he proved what life was supposed to be. And it is a life of yielding to him. I did not come to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And my life proves, in contrast to his, I deserve death. The death he died qualifies you for the life that he lived. That part I get more readily. Because Jesus has died for me and has come to live in me, I can now live the life he lived. And what was the life that he lived? Not my will be done. This wasn't the first time he came to this. These verses I've read, this was his entire life. This was his eternal life with the Father. Not my will, but thine be done. I always do the things that please him. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. They couldn't stay awake, not even for one hour. Oh, we were good Bible college students. Man, there were times when the school would have and a whole night of prayer. Woohoo, man, we were spiritual, I tell you what. There was a little bit of napping that went on during that time, I have to confess. These men were exhausted physically, emotionally, in every way. And no, they didn't fully get, they didn't fully grasp what was going on at the time. It could be, it's been said, that the two strongest drives in a human being are the drive to protect himself and sleep. Everything else, you can pretty easily say no to. You can't say no to sleep. Sooner or later, you will go to sleep. That's one of the forms of torture, is to keep a person awake. Because they'll lose their minds if they don't go to sleep. Your body just shuts down. So we can't be too hard on these guys because in the previous paragraph, Jesus says, you're all going to deny me. No, we won't. Jesus going, he knows self-preservation is going to kick in. And now this one, he's going, stay awake. We go, why can't they stay awake? They're tired. It's hard to stay awake and pray when you're tired. But these are two very dominant drives within us, self-preservation and sleep. But his life, again, is superior to ours. It is truly a supernatural life. 
And so the third time he came back, he says, the betrayer's here. And we know Judas shows up with the mob. He's already determined that he will signal who Jesus is by kissing him. And so it says, verse 8, 48, Now he who was betraying him gave them a sign, saying, Whomever I shall kiss, he is the one, seize him. And immediately he came to Jesus and said, Hail him, and he kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you have come to for. And they came and they laid hands on him and they seized him. He said the disciples would deny him, and now Judas is betraying him. Denial is just simply a refusal to acknowledge. And betrayal is an act of turning against someone. Jesus had to experience this. In order to be a faithful high priest who can intercede for us in our infirmities, who can understand everything that we go through, He had to go through what is probably the hardest thing in life to face, and that is betrayal. I think this is what prompts us to want to cut slack when there is adultery in a marriage and say, surely that should be grounds for divorce because there's no greater sin. There's nothing that could be harder to forgive than the the betrayal of adultery. But God forgives even that. But not just by decree. Jesus experienced it, and Jesus has paid for it. And there is no such thing as an unforgivable sin in the economy of God, including adultery. And I am humbled and impressed by those that I know where there's been adultery in their marriages, And they have forgiven and they have moved on to the glory of God. It is possible. Not in their own humanity, but in Christ it is possible. I'm just going to just quickly not make a lot of remarks here. Um, They seized him. Peter cuts off the ear of, of a slave, Malchus, that was there. There's more details given in John and Luke on this. Jesus says, I have 72,000 angels at my disposal. All this has to happen. This is the key part, verse 54. How then shall the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen this way? And then again, verse 56. All this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets may be fulfilled. And then all the disciples left and fled. Has to happen. Jesus is in control. He is not a victim. He is the king who is gloriously, steadfastly, resolutely moving toward this appointment that he came here for. And then he was, after he'd been seized, he was led away to Caiaphas. Matthew omits that he was taken to Annas first, Caiaphas' father-in-law, who is the actual uh, behind-the-scenes high priest. Caiaphas just happened to be the guy who had the position But Annas was the guy who was pulling all the strings. And as he stood before Caiaphas, Caiaphas was just, it was a kangaroo court, it's a sham trial. Everything about it was illegal. 
And I appreciate that one author has just listed the illegalities that take place during this time, during this sham trial. And the first is, there, there are eight or nine of them. One is a false witness in a capital crime. Um, and a capital crime trial could not be given the death, I'm sorry, could be given the death penalty. They're trying to get false witnesses against Jesus. But the law said if you give a false witness in a capital crime trial, you yourself could be put to death. The rabbinical tradition at this time said that there must be one day of fasting between the passing of sentence and the execution of the criminal. That's not going to take place. And during that time of fasting, when they came back together, the council was to reconvene and decide whether they were wanted to follow through with what they had decided the day before. They could change their, their position if they had pronounced guilt. They could not change their position if they had pronounced innocence. Here's the big one. Council members could not try cases where they had brought the charges. If charges were brought by council members, the entire council was disqualified from trying the case. Isn't that amazing? If even one of those 72 men had brought the charges, the entire council had to recuse themselves. Nobody's recusing himself here. It is illegal. Testimonies of all witnesses had to be precise as to date, time, and location. And these witnesses could not provide any of that. Persons of questionable character were disqualified from testifying. And these were only persons of questionable character. The accused was to be presumed innocent. Jesus was presumed guilty. Criminal trials were not to be convened at night. This is still in the darkness of the, of the early morning. If the trial was underway when night fell, the trial was to be recessed until the following day. It was not the business of the council to solicit anyone's testimony, but they were going out trying to find people who would witness against Jesus. They were supposed to be acting in the capacity of impartial judges, not prosecuting attorneys. And finally, the high priest was never to tear his own clothes. Leviticus 21.10. And when Caiaphas did that, he committed an act of sacrilege. He profaned his own office while accusing Jesus of blasphemy. But maybe the most significant part of this whole trial before Caiaphas is verse 63. Jesus kept silent. What a profound statement. All these false accusations. But see, he did not have to testify against himself. He just kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Oh, my word. And she's still silent. <laughs> I mean, how does he not say, whom you're talking to? You are talking to the living God, by the way. I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus responds, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you hereafter, you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus' favorite title for himself was Son of Man. These Pharisees had heard Jesus say it probably hundreds of times. Son of man, son of man, the son of man has come. He seldom referred to himself as the son of God. 
This tells us Caiaphas knew the real issue. This is not just a man. Are you the Christ, the Son of God? He knew what was going on here. It's astounding. Are you the Christ? See, the Christ had to be both God and man. And Caiaphas knew it. Jesus is putting the focus on his humanity because he represents in dying force all of humanity. But Caiaphas knew that if he's the Christ, he's God. Boy, you hate to be Caiaphas standing at the judgment seat of God. And then Peter's denials. Just as Jesus predicted, three times he denied, twice to just slave girls. And the third time it was somebody else that, rac- that recognized his Galilean accent, said, you've got to be for one of them too. And now he starts cursing and saying, I am not one of them and I do not know the man. The palace of Annas and the palace of Caiaphas would have been joined by a common courtyard. And if Jesus was moved from one to the other, and Peter is in that courtyard, it would have been very easy for them to lock eyes. And that's what happened. And the cock crowed, as Jesus said. And Peter remembered, verse 75, that Jesus said, before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. This will be a turning point in Peter's entire life. Point when he gets reduced and humbled to recognize that his love for Christ is not enough. He doesn't have in his own strength, his own willpower to be loyal. He truly needs Christ. So thankful for these, for the record of what's happened here. It should warm our hearts toward Jesus and give thanks to God for what He did on our behalf. And I pray that as we approach this Christmas season, that we would be so mindful that he came to die. And he came saying, thy will be done. And he died saying, thy will be done. And he lived saying, thy will be done. I'll close this in prayer. Jesus, we... It just seems that saying thank yous doesn't begin to be enough. It is the beginning. Thank you. And I pray that we would all, God, begin, make that first step of faith by saying thank you, God, for what you have done for us. That you have paid for our sins taken our place and made us right with you. Thank you. But God, we'd recognize that 
in saying thank you, you would also have us to say each moment of our lives, not my will, but thine be done. Which is the greatest thanksgiving that we can give because of your mercies toward us that we would present ourselves to you as living sacrifices. Not our will, but yours. Thank you for this Christmas season. Warm our hearts, O God, toward yourself. Fill our hearts, captivate us with your love for us. And make us bold and wise and winsome in sharing Jesus with others. In Christ's name, amen.